Barbara Milro is a child psychiatrist, and she shared a report. Four-year-old Lucy, it seemed, had missed three days of school because of stomach aches. Her mother had taken her to the doctor who shared the diagnosis, aggravated anxiety. Lucy had what my grandmother called a fright. The symptoms started the day after Lucy had witnessed a very a confrontation, a loud argument, a disturbance, a verbal assault while waiting for a bus with her babysitter. She reported that a scary man started shouting at people waiting for the bus. You're all going to be deported now. Lucy didn't know what deported meant. But she knew it was very bad because she could see the reaction of everybody in the, who, standing at the bus stop. And Lucy, Lucy was holding her babysitter's hand and she looked up and she noticed tears in her sitter's eyes. And seeing her babysitter's reaction and everybody in the crowd's reaction, Lucy stomach started to turn over and to rumble. And she continued to be anxious with stomach upsets and sleeping problems for days and days. In the last six months, medical professionals, clergy, teachers have noticed an uptick in anxiety among children. Strong emotions, especially fear, are contagious. Sympathetic response, they call it in the, your body sympathizes with others and you actually feel the emotion in that response. Human beings evolved to be human beings in communities of common endeavor and common defense. For millennia, people gathered together in villages hoping to create sanctuary for their children and for themselves. And evolving as a species in this community, we attune to each other. We, we learn to feel and experience each other's emotions. And if, now, yes, there was strength in numbers, but we also learned to share joy and exaltation and sorrow and fear. So when people around us are afraid, we pick up that fear. And becoming afraid as receptors, we become transmitters. And so yes, anxiety spreads easily among us, as do other emotions. And children, children are the most vulnerable. Children find it especially difficult to differentiate between emotions and the actual situation, to access the actual threat. So a bus stop full of adults can be frightened by the yelling of a scary man yelling offensive and, uh, remarks, even though their numbers constitute a deterrent. 
Then Lucy becomes afraid and she stays afraid long, long after the scary man has gone away. Now, these are difficult times. These are difficult times as, as, as Danielle prayed to us about. And it is not surprising that people are feeling anxious. Congregations like this would have a role to play and congregations, congregations can make a big difference. I know because I came of age in scary times. We may not remember now, but maybe we do. But thermonuclear war was a looming threat 60 years ago. Thermonuclear war was something blooming on you. It was pushing you in. There were subway signs, sub signs in the subway stations telling us that the station was an air raid shelter. You can see it. Park Street Station, Harvard Square Station, signs. Harvard, uh, and there were signs on the streets telling us this was an evacuation route. Want to go to New Hampshire? Go down. There were sirens, and there were drills. And when the siren rang and the children in those years were instructed to get under our desks at school and hide until the siren stopped, they built air-to-ground missile launching station at one of the islands in Boston Harbor. You could see if you stood at the Coast Guard station, it and you looked out on the Boston Harbor, you could see the white peaks of the Nike missiles on that little island. Didn't look like a little island when I was young. And all they told us, they said, we're doing this because we need to feel prepared. Prepared to be ready just in case. Doomsday was coming. Gotta get ready. Gotta be prepared. Now, I can't say whether this was a generational trauma. I could check out at coffee hour with people who have hair color like mine. But the morning, but in the morning, the mornings when you woke up, I, if the light poured into the window and my eyes opened, I saw it was like a flash. And it woke me up with a start. And I would sort of almost jump. It was like I experienced that maybe an H-bomb had just blown up outside my window. My body was full of anxiety and drawing the shade didn't solve the problem because the, somehow the light poured out there and there were all those loud noises. And I shared my fright with young people and they confessed that they were too, they too experience these drills and these warnings as problematic, as fearful as childhood trauma, even if you want to use those kind of fancy words. It was scary. And the public schools didn't provide venues for teens to talk about the bomb. My church did. My church did. The liberal religious youth, in its book on what a youth advisor was supposed to do, said they were supposed to talk about topics of interest to the youth. 
That's a quote from the instruction manual. And being blown up was something we wanted to talk about. And we did. Talking among ourselves and with the adults in the congregation, we learned the facts about the nuclear arms race, and it, and it became something that was no longer unspeakable. We spoke out. We listened. We talked about it. We stopped being alone, and we shared, and we came to terms. With the con in that conversation with each other. And we, as we talked about it, we also learned to sing. It was a song I remember especially. There was lots of songs that we sang, but the song I played on my radio when I was coming to church today. Last night, I had the strangest dream I ever had before. I dreamed the world had ever all agreed to put an end to war. And we sang that just about every other Y meeting, it seemed to me. In that conversation, we were able to see perspectives, and not just the official Cold War rationales we got on television and the newspaper. We were able to hear opposition opinions and confounding views and moral objections. And it was in LRY I learned about the nuclear disarmament campaign. And you may be familiar with its symbol. Circle, straight line, two sharp lines, stands out, branding, nuclear disarmament. We campaigned, we met, we paraded on Easter with those signs, with that symbol. And at the time, I was 18, I was learning that the answer to fear was other people, was organizing, was sharing our joys with each other. And in my case, sharing fears, fears. And getting together with others and talking about the problem and facing up to the horror, the danger, the threat, and articulating an alternative, and taking action together, witnessing to a different world. It made a difference. It really did stop from lonely, scared, afraid to talk about it, jumping under my bed, to being with others made a difference. Being sanctuary together, creating sanctuary together with other young people, with the adults in my congregation, welcoming, making a difference, providing a safe space. Unitarian Universalist congregations have been doing that for a long time. That was the 1950s. And we're still doing it. And we use the word sanctuary. You may have heard the term. Sometimes the worship space of, in a congregation is called a sanctuary. When Linda quoted Jack Mendelssohn this morning, she, he used the word sanctuary to describe the place. The place. In the first parish, we call this space the meeting house. For a long, as a longtime member of Arlington Street Church, I called the 
this, this space, the sanctuary, until I was corrected a few times. Sanctuary. But that's what most congregations do call their worship space. And many of you know there's also a young adult-oriented community that calls itself a sanctuary. And if you look up in the, the, uh, in the internet, you'll find that there are lots of sanctuary congregations, and sanctuary this. and uh, There are lots of examples. Sanctuary. The dictionary tells me the word originally meant sacred space. But it acquired the meaning, it said, dictionaries are very good at that, acquired the meaning also of safe space because sanctuaries were sacred spaces and therefore safe spaces. And being trained as a preacher, I kept looking up those words, kept looking, looking. And I found this definition of sacred, to be dedicated to contemplation, to that which is reliable, that which is of ultimate value, and this, to be free of violence, sacred, sacred. And then Farisa Franco tells us, sanctuary. Sanctuary is a spiritual stance that recognizes that oppression is trying to fill our lives with fear and blood and daily numbing horror. And sanctuary says, not in here. Not in my home. Not in my bed. Not in my movement. Sanctuary makes a ring of fire around people. Sanctuary grants us a taste of reprieve and protection so that we can gather strength and go out there again and fight. We need to embrace the duty of sanctuary, not just the physical offering of refuge, but as a duty to each other and as a quality of our relationships with one another. I love the dynamic of that quote, the internal tension. One comes to sanctuary to experience safety and reprieve. One comes because one's vulnerable and one needs a safe place. And, one go, and also one can go out again to be present to a world of pain because one has been in a safe space. So sanctuary is something we create. Even if it's a cathedral. Even if it's a, a meeting house. It's something we create. A safe place a place made sacred by us. We come for reprieve, renewal, recharging, and in times like this, being sanctuary is a gift to ourselves, yes, but to others as well. Sanctuary is an intergenerational gift for we remember the children. Remember Lucy. who would experience anxiety and anger and the tears of her babysitter's eyes. 
And we need to be in a place free of violence. We need to be in such a place. And sanctuary is what my church, my youth group provided to me and to the, young, the other young people living with in those years, so many years ago. So today, especially, we need sanctuary. The young and those of us who are not so young anymore. We need a place of safety, of restoration, of renewal, and because we received it, we're called to share it, to offer it to others. Again, Maria Franco, as a duty to each other and a quality of our relationships to one another. Becoming sanctuary is a process, never finished, constantly renewed, not static. We took a stand, this congregation, First Parish, took a stand to become a congregation that offers sanctuary as part of a coalition of Cambridge faith communities. A woman and her two children in fear of deportation to a dangerous and threatening home is now being protected, sheltered, and supported right now. We have dedicated our offering to that coalition and many volunteers for the last six weeks and today. This provision of physical sanctuary and all of the volunteers, the dedicated and skilled time is an offer of support and sanctuary to a threatened community and our coalition, our volunteers, especially need volunteers for accompaniment, for people who can stay overnight, one night or every now and then, because that team, that's very special work, and I call upon you to do it if you can. And I also suggest that part of Sanctuary is not simply a project. It's not simply a project of a team or a a task force. You can't just say beyond borders. They're doing sanctuary. We are a congregation. We are becoming sanctuary. We become sanctuary. Something that we do every day of the week and all of our volunteer commitments. Being sanctuary is a congregational task in this time because being sanctuary involves everything we do in our religious education, in our music, in our worship, in our welcoming, in our being together, providing safe space, providing a chance for a listening ear, and yes, providing a place to witness, witness for a different world, one free of violence and frights, made sacred and safe by love.